Welcome to episode 207 of the Apple and Apps and App Addict Weekly Podcast. This is your host, Trevor Sheridan of AppleandApps.com, and joining me as usual, my co-host, Brett Nolan of AppAddict.net. Join us this week as we knock around the double dose of Apple news and speed through the App Store on the hunt for new releases. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing pretty good. It's like the day before Halloween, and we got last week we got these two Apple events, sort of, two Apple big things, so lots of Apple news and some Good games came out, so it, it was a good week. Yeah, eventful times. And so we'll start off with the Apple event. This is Apple's last kind of thing of 2016, and we knew it was going to mainly be about the Mac, and that's what it was. And the big release is the new MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. So that function row of keys is, in fact, an OLED Touch Bar, and it's actually running a version of watchOS, and it essentially lets you have various UI functions based on the current app you're using. And it's all going to be touch-based right within that function key row on the MacBook Pro. Right. Actually, it's multi-touch-based. So you can actually have, I think, up to 10 touches simultaneously to do all kinds of stuff on there. So that is like opens up. I mean, they showed a lot of functionality in the presentation, but it just opens it up to like a huge amount of opportunity for developers to take advantage of going forward. Yeah, there's, I mean, they showed pretty much their own apps. Like the iMovie version was pretty cool how you could see the various items, you know, your different tracks. And then the same thing with iDephoto, you can swipe through your photos. It's really kind of this Apple emphasis. We're not going to make a touch-based Mac, but touch controls can still help because They kept presenting the idea that if you have a touch-based Mac, your fingers and your hands are going to be covering part of the screen and the ergonomics don't work because the screen is going to be vertical in that laptop form. And so this is kind of how they're going to come up with an alternative, at least in the meantime. Right, right. And it's interesting that this announcement happened the same week as as Microsoft Surface Pro uh, announcement, which is now this desktop all-in-one Mac, uh, PC that is looks like something Apple would design, but it has that touch screen that you would use, but you are touching the screen and your hands do kind of cover portions of it. So you can definitely see where they're trying to position themselves and especially up against what looks like this beautiful looking new PC, how they're going to have to spin this and uh, try to get people to understand their vision of a touch-based PC versus what all these other uh, like Windows-based manufacturers are doing. Yep. And so beyond that touch bar, I mean, the touch bar, it's neat. I don't know if I want to have one hand over the touchpad at the bottom and then another hand over the touch bar up by the function key. That seems a bit awkward. Right. They, well, they kept on saying, well, you'll never have to take your hands off the keyboard. But it is awkward because you are traveling the distance, the entire distance of the keyboard. If you're down on that touchpad, you now have to basically have one hand covering the entire keyboard to reach up to that new touch bar. So it's still not optimal. It's not like you're not moving your hand away from where it already is. You really have to go up there to use this particular bar. Yeah, I understand replacing that function key row, but the functionality of the touch bar should kind of fit closer to the touchpad where you have your other, you're used to dragging your finger around as the mouse cursor. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, it just it seems like it would be awkward to have your hand kind of almost resting on the keyboard to use this this touch bar. Yep. And so Touch ID is also built into that touch bar, so you can now unlock your Mac using just your fingerprint. And then, like I said, all those function keys are going to be there by default, and it's only going to be replaced as you use these different apps, and they have different functionality built into that touch bar. Otherwise, there's just going to be digital versions of those familiar buttons. Right, yeah, so it'll be context-sensitive, so it'll adjust based on what you're using, but then you also do have the ability to uh, try to customize it and put on things that you might use more often that you want up at that top to quickly access things within that, that, that touch bar. Yeah, like Mail was pretty neat how it had that autocorrect keyboard from iOS, but... I don't know if I'm going to go up and do it. Like with yes. iOS, you're <laughs> typing, and it seems like your thumb doesn't have to travel that far to tap on one of those exactly. autocorrect yeah. suggestions. I was thinking the exact same thing when they were showing. I'm like, that would be nice to have that. But again, like you're moving so far away from where you might be typing, and you're no longer – it's one thing like on the – the phone, you're looking at the same screen where now this is you have to bring your eyes down to this other screen to do it and take it away from the screen where you might happen to be already typing, especially if you're a touch typer and you don't need to look at the keyboard. Your eyes aren't going to be there to look at the suggestions they are going to be up on the screen. Yep. And so beyond actual touch bar, the device itself is now three pounds. The previous generation MacBook Pro was... 3.5 pounds and that's for the 13 inch model the 15 inch model is 14 pounds and then the thin... uh, four pounds Not yeah 14. four pounds i'm looking at the <laughs> millimeter measurements but you're right <laughs> 14 pound wouldn't be a benefit no no that would be a, an albatross to carry around <laughs> and so the 15 inch is four pounds and then that 14.9 millimeter it's actually thinner than the macbook air which is pretty nice to have that Pro model into the former size of the MacBook Air because I have a 2011 MacBook Air, and one of the reasons is because of that portability. And so it's nice that the MacBook Pro got fit into that size or that form factor. Yeah, that is nice. It's nice to have that, especially with uh, the. I, I complain about them making the phone thinner and thinner, but that's not that heavy to begin with and carry around. Where it is nice if you have a laptop that you have to carry around all the time with you to have that as light as possible and as thin as possible, just so it's not so bulky in a bag carrying it around. You can toss it in other bags that you might happen to have. You don't always have to have a laptop bag. And so just having that thinner is a, a huge convenience. Yep. And, I mean, Apple kind of updated the device in numerous ways. They improved the speakers. They made the screen 67% brighter with improved contrast ratio. The write speeds of flash storage are improved 100%. The graphics are improved. And then there is the same up to 10 hours battery life. But with all the changes, Apple also changed one other feature, and that's the price. <laughs> and so... Last year, the 2015 MacBook Pro in 13 inches started at $1,299. Now, if you get this new MacBook Pro, it starts at $1,499. And that's without the touch bar. If you want the touch bar version, it's $1,799. So the main reason, Apple's charging you $200 off the bat because they're bumping the storage from 128 to 256 gigabytes as the default lowest storage options. Option. So if you only need 128 gigabytes, too bad, you got to pay $200 more. And then that touch bar is a $300 increase. So you can get the regular function key version of this three-pound 
13 inch thinner MacBook Pro, but it doesn't have the touch bar. You got to need to spend 300 bucks to get up to 1799. Right. The pricing was a, a pretty big shock, seeing as every time we've seen upgrades to the iPhones and they've upgraded the storage, it always comes in back right at the same price every year. And it's kind of confusing why Apple would really like jack up the price like this, especially where people have been waiting for this for so long. I guess maybe they think because people have been waiting, they're just going to shell out whatever it costs. But it it just doesn't make any sense to have it that much more expensive for the technology that you're introducing. I mean, it's not maybe the $200 increase, but not the $500 increase seems kind of high right off the bat. It pushed me away. Going into the vent, I was planning on getting the new MacBook Pro. I figured it might be more than that $1299. I was hoping $1299 just because they've had that $1299 entry-level price on the MacBook Pro for I don't know how many years. It seems every year it's $1299 as that entry-level. And now to get rid of that and start your entry-level at $1499, it then sets you up to just tack on a few more hundred to get the actual touch bar. Right. And even that 1499, you know that you're giving something up like it's to me, that's not even like the intro level at that point. You're kind of like below the intro level if you want the latest technology. Yeah. And so and well, one other thing we should mention is on this new MacBook, they eliminated all kinds of ports. So you basically have nothing but USB-C ports. So that means that new iPhone 7 that you just bought, you can't even directly plug it in and sync it on your new MacBook without using a dongle or an adapter of some sort, because all there are are these USB-C ports. And so, and so for, it means like any of the ports you can use for power and any of the ports you can use for anything else that you want, but you need the correct dongle to convert them into the proper USB three, USB two, whatever other type of device you're going to use. So it's now you're going to have to carry around all these extra peripherals just to be able to connect your stuff to it i think there was actually a headphone jack so at least i didn't dump that but i don't know it's the fact that you can't even have your existing apple devices connect directly to this without using a dongle is kind of confusing when they want you to go ahead and just enter the ecosystem and everything works together seamlessly yeah i mean most stuff that i have is usb too just the microphone i'm using for this podcast it's usb 2 so now you need an adapter just to do something that you've been doing for a long time right yeah and i mean i i understand that they want to try to make it thinner and they're using these ports but they kind of have some other way like immediately if i bought this what i would be doing is buying a magnetic usb-c cord which they do make and i think it's like 40 bucks to have basically my MagSafe power charging because that was the most incredible invention ever. I love it ever since I've had I've been using it on my MacBook, and I will never want to use a power cable that you have to plug directly in and risk someone pulling it out or it pulling your laptop to the floor. I, there's been it saved me several times of that getting automatically disconnected when someone runs by me or someone's pulling on a cord and they're not pulling my computer off the table. Yeah, because the the 15 inch it starts at 23.99, and it doesn't even include that power adaptation extension cable. So you're dropping 2,400 bucks, and Apple can't even throw in that 19 dollar cable that they've <laughs> thrown in previous MacBook Pro models. 
Uh, I know. It's I don't know why they're nickel and dime and everything all of a sudden. It just doesn't make sense, especially when they are hurting. They are hurting so bad. They need people to buy this stuff. And I don't understand. Yeah, if you just want to plug in your new iPhone 7 to your new MacBook Pro, you got to spend 19 bucks to yep. get a special cable. I mean, that's pretty insane. <laughs> They're both brand new models. It's not like I'm trying to plug in my old iPhone 3G or something. I know. It, it seems so short-sighted to me. I don't understand what they are thinking. I guess they're kind of thinking about their Apple earnings, but we're going to save that for a little bit. So beyond the MacBook Pro, so for me, I was going to buy it. The price dissuaded me. I'm going to just run it with my old device and hope that next year, once none of these sell, or after the first week when all the Super Apple fans buy their MacBooks and then they don't sell any for the remaining <laughs> time. And so this time next October, maybe the interlevel price is more understandable or there's a refurbished model of this Touch ID version or this Touch Bar version that is a regular price that, I mean, Apple's charging a premium. $1,300 isn't cheap for a laptop, but no. Apple somehow made $1,800 try to, some people actually think it's normal or it's understandable. Right, and that's even just for like the thirteen inch too. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's what I have. Twenty four hundred bucks for a fifteen inch. That's crazy I know. Stuff. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, my guess is six months from now you'll start seeing refurb units pop up, and I don't know how much of a discount they'll be, but I really don't think this is going to sell as well as Apple hopes at these price levels. But uh, yeah, it, there will be that initial run, and then we'll definitely see it taper off. And because when Apple first launched the MacBook Pro with Retina Display, that first version, it came at a premium price. It might have been $17.99, that first one that was 13 inches that had a Retina Display. But then yep. the following year, it came to $12.99 after they had that year. So they gouged all those early adopters. And then the next year, we have a new Retina Display version with a new processor, and it's back to our $12.99 price. So we could see a Touch Bar version at $12.99 next year. Yeah, I, I, I bet you're right. I, I think you're dead on with that. And beyond the MacBook Pro, Apple did announce TV-specific functionality, and they're introducing not a new box that supports 4K, which I would have bought today, but no, <laughs> it's actually just a feature. It's a TV app that will be coming sometime in December as an update to existing Apple TV boxes, and it's designed to be kind of your TV hub, where you go to this... And rather than go into specific apps to find the shows you were watching, this app will have whatever show, like say you were watching a show last night from ABC or whatever, and you're on season two, episode four. Season two, episode five should be the first thing in this TV app without opening the ABC app. And kind of down the line, whatever shows you're watching, maybe you're watching a currently airing show and it shows up on Thursdays. So it will bring that to the forefront and it all ties into the services you own. So if you are not subscribed to HBO, HBO shows aren't going to be included in this Apple TV app. But as Apple's talking about it, there's two big omissions. The first is obviously Amazon Prime because Apple doesn't even have an Apple TV Amazon Prime app because of the sharing thing that Amazon's not going to agree to split their revenue. And then Netflix isn't included in this TV app as of launch. Netflix has said we're kind of interested, we're looking into the possibility, but at launch, Netflix isn't included. And that makes 
it's tough to make this the center of your TV viewing experience without Netflix and Amazon. Right, right, yeah. Those are, the Netflix one surprised me more than Amazon. Did yeah, because well, Amazon they, was expected, but Netflix is right. crazy. Right, yeah, and because this is finally this is how the the Apple TV should have worked from the get go. Like this is how they should have launched it. They bought that matcha company years ago, and this is what it basically did. It made it so you did not have to open all these other apps, and you just went to one central location, got all the programs that you wanted, and it would load it up. And if like uh, maybe several months ago, we talked about an app called Real Good, R E E L Good, and their their model is the same similar type of thing except they only support hbo showtime and netflix and so it's the same type of thing where you don't want to have to open all these separate little apps and find the program within that app you just want to search like a normal like current the way that we normally watch tv nowadays and just see the program listings and then select the show based on what you want to watch who cares what channel it's on launch my app that has that channel and shows me that content and jump me right to that episode. I don't want to have to open the app, find that episode and then watch it. Just give it to me right away. And so finally this is working. Those two huge omissions are really annoying. It's like you said, if this is supposed to be your center of how you watch TV, it's not going to work if you can't put Netflix in there or you and hopefully they'll finally come up with a deal for Amazon and put that in there. This is why I use my TiVo for watching all my content, because it is so much easier. It has Amazon. It has Netflix. It has all my channels. And I can do this the same exact way where I can just go to the episode I want. I can set up wish lists for all these shows, know when a new streaming episode comes. And if Apple is really going to be successful, they have to get every major like TV program app on board. They can't have huge omissions like Netflix. And so it'll be curious to see how much people use it. But without Netflix, you're right. It's it's going to be tough. Yeah, because, I mean, when I was actually doing the intro, I was thinking of examples, and I'm going to say Stranger Things, or I'm going to say Luke Cage, and it's like, <laughs> nope, that's not going to show up in this TV app. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, the interface is really neat. As they were going over it, the demo looked great that, say you were watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox, it's going to show up right there, because I don't remember, I was, was I watching episode 10, or was I watching episode 12? I don't remember, so you have to go to the app, find this stupid Fox app, and then go in through their multiple menus just to get to Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I just want to start playing it. So that's really neat. But on the flip side, we got to have the full package or the neatness kind of wears off. Right. And what the one curious thing is they did try to elude like they had live TV on this. But really, there's only limited apps that support live TV. And so they, their big example during the demo was CBS. Well, that's a subscription service if you want live CBS through their CBS streaming thing. It's not – they kind of made it look like they have live TV and you can watch your networks live, but it's really not the case. You're going to – most of the stuff is going to be pre-recorded things or uh, the basically anything you would normally access through the apps currently today. And not it's not going to offer you like you can watch your local news unless, of course, news on is supported. Then maybe uh, you'll be able to to say, I want to watch my local news right now and then it will pop up. And 
I don't know exactly how that worked, but it did have Siri integration to help you quickly navigate things without having to go through even their really good looking UI that they do have. Yeah, so Siri Live Sports is going to be part of this update. So their example was ESPN, but with Watch ESPN, you need to be subscribed to a service that includes ESPN or there's no value. So if you don't have ESPN, like this isn't that cord cutter kind of thing where you can just subscribe to ESPN. You need to have a subscription to ESPN. But then once you do, you could say put on whatever, the baseball game night, or like their example was watch Louisville football, and it would put it on. You wouldn't have to go to the watch ESPN app. Right, right. But then if apps aren't updated, so for my local area, the Lakers are on Spectrum Sportsnet. Spectrum Sportsnet app, I don't think it's going to be updated <laughs> to support Siri Live Sports, so I can't just say put on the Laker game and it's going to put it on. Right, right. And so that's kind of the problem when you have all these separate apps and you need all these separate updates to the individual apps, even if the OS has this core functionality. Right, but you would think that there's some incentive there to upgrade your app so that you will be found within this update. But whether you have the resources to do it or the knowledge to do it, that's another question. Or you want to have that at expense where if you don't care, then you're not going to update it. So, yeah, when you have a third party, every single person has to update. It's going to be a lot slower to roll out than if it was one of these things where Apple could just turn it on on all existing apps without them having to do anything. Yep. One other interesting kind of TV aspect is that you sent me the link that AT&T announced DirecTV Now which is going to be a $35 a month package where you get 100 channels, all streaming-based. And, I mean, DirecTV is one of the most expensive packages you have when it comes to satellite. And so AT&T bought them, and now they're going to offer this direct package of DirecTV. And, of course, AT&T bought Time Warner last week, and so that's not approved or anything. They don't have any special packages. This is just DirecTV, but it kind of shows you that AT&T has the foresight and they're already getting this system implemented. We'll see what they do down the road. Right, and they're already undercutting some of the other existing services. Like there's that. I think all of them. Play, yeah, like PlayStation View. Is that yeah. what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that was probably one of the best-looking bargains compared to anything else as far as streaming, direct streaming, and getting the content. Even in some markets, you got live TV on network TV. Like, so if you're in New York City, you've got all the major networks. I think the only one we could get if I were to sign up was CBS. But otherwise, like, that was the best deal going until it sounds like this uh, direct TV thing through ATT is going to be even cheaper and offer all the same channels, if not more channels. Yeah, so they're, be... they're going to offer the most channels for the price, 100 channels for 35 bucks. because Sling TV, I think they only offer 40 channels, and it's like 25 bucks. Okay, yeah. And PlayStation View is around the same thing. So this, I mean, I'm happy to see other uh, challengers in this market because this is where everyone wants it to go because – Paying these cable bills is ridiculous, although I was able to reduce mine and jack up my, my internet speed through a great deal that I was able to get. But you have to be vigilant about that and constantly watch and call up and see what other bargains you can get because most of these places only reward the, – the standard cable companies only reward new customers. They don't care about existing customers. They won't offer them a bargain. They won't give them any kind of deals. It's only to recruit new people. So 
if you need this these uh, challengers to come in to have competition so that it forces the cable companies to actually do something and try and do something to retain their customer base rather than I mean, the best deal is when you have uh, Verizon and, say, Comcast, which is what I have in my area, in the same marketplace, because then you can keep on quitting one, join the other and keep on getting those new customer deals where if you're stuck in a one cable company market, then you need these online streaming services to really kind of force the hand of the old model Comcasts and, and those companies and have other choices out there. And to see these new streaming services like this DirecTV one coming in is just great news for everybody. Yep, exactly. And so that means we can transition to Apple earnings because we talked enough about the Apple event. And kind of when we were talking about that seventeen ninety nine or twenty three ninety nine price, it might be based on Apple's earnings, and instead of trying to drive growth by getting new people, it's to take in more money from the people they already have into their system. <laughs> <laughs> and so, let's, yeah. Yeah, let's let our existing customer base pay for our losses. Yeah, so that's why I decided I'm not going to be Apple's own personal bailout. <laughs> but some people might. And so for Apple's Q4 2016, because their quarterly year runs from September to September, they earned $46.9 in revenue and $9 billion in profit. That's down from Q4 of 2015, where they saw $51.1 billion in, in revenue and profits of $11.1 billion. So they're definitely on the decline. This is the third straight quarter they have declined. But they're still making $9 billion in profit. I don't think my decision not to drop another $1,800 in computers is going to impact them. But I guess over long term, if they keep going down where $11 billion is $9 billion, that $9 billion is $7 billion, that could start to add up. And part of that is that the gross margin was 38%. And that's what Apple actually is earning not just selling. Like if they sell a computer for $1,800, they're not making $1,800. So that 38%, they want to increase that number. And part of the way to do that is to charge $1,800 for a computer that you used to charge $1,300 for. Right, exactly. Well, I think they got those margins got to be even higher on that. But so like we should reiterate that this Bear, does not include like iPhone 7 sales. They're, this These numbers, like it's not going to bail them out. We're going to see next quarter. It really doesn't, it's not going to help them out. It's The sales are still going to be low. But one interesting thing that I had read was I think it's some really large percentage. I want to say it's like 40, over 40 something percent of the existing phones out there Next year, when the iPhone 8 or 10 or whatever they decide to call it comes out, are going to be two years old or older. And so they, they're they really kind of – the iPhone 7 was just kind of like, uh, let's – we need an upgrade. We need to move forward. Next year is really going to be the big make or break for Apple as far as the phone goes because – that's when you have all of the, this huge percentage of people ready to upgrade, willing to upgrade. Do you have something that is worthwhile upgrading? And I think that we're not going to see any better numbers from them until this hopefully miracle working iPhone next gen comes out. And then finally, we're going to see an uptick in iPhone. And I don't think we're going to see anything 
until that point. I'm afraid of that next iPhone just because of this new MacBook Pro. There might be a super awesome new iPhone next year. But but, do they raise the price? Or is there a new tier? We have an iPhone 8. It's pretty much like the iPhone 7. Then there's the iPhone 8 Plus. And now we have the iPhone X. It's our 10-year anniversary. It's super awesome. But instead of that $199 entry price, maybe it's $599 now. And, you know, that's with contract. We're talking the phone starts at 650 bucks. So maybe this phone's a grant just because it's super awesome and it's our best phone ever. And so now you start (laughs) splitting it into these multiple tiers. It has a touch bar on the back of the phone that you can do magical finger stuff with. I don't care. But (laughs) it's really scary that they made a point that it's the 25th year anniversary of our Mac. And here's this super awesome Mac that's at this new tier, this new price point that is a big, huge leap. They could do the same exact thing with the phone. And that's a slippery slope just because... With the phone sales since the first phone till now, no matter who you are, you're getting the same phone. You know, the Apple Watch, you can be getting the $300 Apple Watch or the $10,000 Apple Watch. You have the phone. If I spend $200 on the phone and you spend $200 on the phone, you know, that's the choice. You can get more storage, but I have the same phone as you do. To distinguish the phones could really hurt Apple long term. Okay, now you have me worried. I, I was all excited for this next phone. Now I'm a little nervous. Yeah, and so, <laughs> I, I mean, that's kind of, before the Apple, before the new MacBook Pro, I didn't really think Apple was going to make a big deal of it being the 10-year anniversary and certainly wouldn't have some new, awesome, super thin phone that's all glass. But now a different tier for a different phone just seems like the path that Tim Cook is leading Apple on right now. But I, I think it's way too dangerous for them to do something like that, especially they have to see that their sales are dropping like crazy. And I don't – they have to change the way they're doing business if they want that to, to improve. Making a much more expensive phone is not going to help. It's yeah. only going to drive people away. The one kind of bright point you could find is that Apple's guidance for Q1 of 2017 is 76 to $78 billion. And if they come in like they came in for this guidance, because the guidance, I think, was 46 to 48, and they came in... No, it was 45 to 47. They came at 46.9. So if they come up the upper end of the guidance, they'll actually grow from Q1 of 2016. Right, right. And I think they're banking on the Macs doing well and the phone doing well. And I... I really don't know how how truthful that's going to be because they the phone isn't that much of an upgrade and the Macs are really expensive. Yeah. So I, I don't and know. The iPad's still not doing anything. Yeah, the iPad hasn't changed. It's not like they introduced new Apple TV hardware, so that's staying the same. I don't know that you're going to sell Watch more. Apple Watch 2 is this. not some super big thing. No. Uh, do they expect this Nike one? I mean, we we had no news as far as the update on the AirPods, when those are coming. Uh, maybe that's going to be in, in the, that quarter. I don't know. And they're hoping that's going to be huge. And so in terms of specific sales numbers, Apple sold 45.5 million iPhones compared to 48 million. The iPad was at 9.3 million compared to 9.9 million. And the Mac sold 4.9 million compared to 5.7. So all three of those lines less in Q4 2016 than in Q4 2015. Right. It was a slight increase, though, on the iPhone sales 
between last quarter and this quarter, though. They had. Well, that's uh, always uh, like that. Right, right. Yeah. And so one other thing is Apple sold 231.2 million iPhones in 2015, combining all four quarters together. This year, they sold 211.8 million. So those three consecutive declining quarters resulted in a total of 20 million less iPhones sold this year than last year. Yep. And that adds up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't upgrade this year. I, well, actually, this one had my iPhone 7 purchase, but... Still, I think there's with these incremental upgrades, there's just not the incentive to upgrade. The only thing that seems to really go bad after two years on these phones is the battery. And if you can ride out a bad battery or a not as not as powerful battery and get a case, then you can get more than two years out of these phones. Yeah. And so that's Apple earnings. Their event kind of feels like a response to their earnings because the earnings were on Tuesday. The event wasn't until Thursday. And it could be a slippery slope for Apple if they start trying, you know, to get more money from the people they have rather than to get more people. Right. Well, especially where you have other competitors really stepping up their game. Like the the Google is coming out with some high quality like the pixel phone that they introduced and then you have microsoft trying to edge in on their business with their much more apple looking type desktop yeah, but that thing's so, three thousand bucks but you're talking about a, a macbook that's like 25 2600 bucks so and you're in the range and it's that's three grand I, for an imac with a touch screen <laughs> yeah but still like it's still potential competition that is finally stepping in and they who knows i mean microsoft could reduce the price of the thing but it's still higher quality competition than they've ever had before like i think this is the closest companies are actually getting to apple quality products in other spaces yeah definitely agree with that and so i think they should respond more to that idea than to kind of put themselves away. Because after the event, Phil Schiller was like, we design based on our customers, not based on price or something stupid like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, some of your customers actually care about price. You know, we don't have infinite funds. Yes, we're not going to drop whatever money you asked for. Yeah, and then the thing is, it's not about it being affordable or not. It's just the principle of it. You charged $1,300 last year. Now you're charging $500 more, and I still don't see why. That's right. the, the thing. It's the principle right. of it. It's you not don't the money. See enough change there, or what? I mean, there's change, but you don't see that there's that much worth of change in in the upgrade. Yep. And so that's pretty much the Apple news. There's a lot I know, and so that means we can finally transition to new games. And the first game, well, this week of games isn't as big just because there was the Apple events. And then Apple also has all this kind of featuring for Halloween. So the new releases are pushed down on that App Store page. But there are still some new apps. And the first one's Pinout. It comes from Mediocre. They made Smash Hit as well as... Does Not Commute. Does Not Commute. I was just going to call it that crazy driving game. So thank (laughs) you. (laughs) And so with Pinout, 
it kind of is like smash hit. It takes that formula where you have that endless setup and then you can unlock checkpoints. But now it's a pinball game. So you're flipping the ball upwards and trying to get to each new section. So you need to hit it up to ramps and that will get you to a new set of flippers. And then you're going to keep doing that for as long as you can. You start out with 60 seconds and then the time you can earn more time. There's these little pickups along certain ramps, so you want specific shots. But, I mean, that's kind of the main idea. It's this endless form of pinball, but with a timer. So it's not kind of go as long as you can without losing a certain number of balls. It's doing it with the race against the clock. Right. It kind of reminds me of those classic arcade racing games. I can't think of the name of it, where you're basically trying to reach a checkpoint, and then you get more time on the clock and you're just trying to go as long as you can and really you're only going to be hampered by your own inability to hit to stay on track or in this case hit the the ramps that give you the the additional time so you really have to plan out shots and it is like you definitely feel that pressure against the time when all of a sudden the ball is rolling back and your flipper misses it and you hit too soon or you hit you completely miss and now it's back in a whole new section of the table that you already made it through but you still have to go back through this and get it back to where you were and then hopefully reach another checkpoint to get more time on the clock but you're wasting time because you're redoing sections you've already done and it, it has that same sort of endless racing feel but in a pinball table it's a really neat idea for a game like i've never seen this before where you have like an endless pinball game they again done you know they kind of take an idea that's kind of familiar ahead but they make it fresh like does not commute it has that strategy idea where you have this time management but they do it where all the cars overlap upon one another with smash it you have that endless idea where you need to keep breaking things and making checkpoints but that checkpoint system they introduced was completely brand new at the time and now pinball it makes sense you've played it you just tap either side of the screen to activate the flippers but now you're doing so with that endless setup and like you said each hit that you mess up on, you feel that time crunch. Like you miss the ramp and now the ball's slowly trickling back to you. You're like, oh no, what am I am I gonna be able to pull this off or get some more time going with the or even if you hit like there's two ramps. You hit to the left ramp and the right ramp has those time checks. Hitting to that left ramp, you made it through, but now it kinda hurts you actually as you go forward. Right, right. Yeah, because you, do you waste time and let it roll back in and hope you can hit the other ramp instead? Or do you just move forward and plow forward and hope you can reach another checkpoint or the end of this section of tables to then start a new section and have a little more time on the clock? So there's a lot of – there's some strategy there, but it's more of a reactive strategy. And one of the neat things is there's – beyond just the, the time pickups – is there's these other little things you can hit which unlock these sort of in-table mini-games. And you play them just like you would, like, left and right, and they kind of appear in the top section of the screen where you would see, like, on an actual physical table, and you have, like, these kind of cheesy little fun mini-games that you can play where, one, you're, like, dodging traffic, and you're, so you're tapping left and right to move the car left and right, but it feels like it's within the pinball game. Like, I feel, it, like, yes, this is never a game you would sit there and play on its own, but it, because it's kind of embedded within the table, it feels kind of natural and feels like something you would unlock on a physical pinball table. 
Yeah, the first one I saw it, it threw me off. I was like, you know, I didn't put my eyes up to the top of the screen and I just died. I had to dodge traffic or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so once I figured that out, it's a neat little inclusion that you wouldn't expect with that endless pinball nature because it's that classic idea and it kind of throws you off a little break in the action. Right. Yeah. It, it lets you rest a little bit and kind of recharge before you're racing again. One one the uh, one thing we should mention is it's got this. The game has this whole like '80s neon theme and like art style to it, and it's got a great soundtrack to it that reminded me a bit of uh, the Stranger Things theme. It's like this really synthesized, like hard, fun little music that plays as you're playing. You just want to. I don't know. It just draws you into like that pinball era, and you you just playing, and it's just a fun setup that they have. It's really just a well rounded package. Do you know how much the in app purchase is if you want to unlock all the the checkpoint system? Yeah, it was one ninety nine. Okay, I so think. it's a one time dollar ninety nine fee. It's just like Smash Hit, so that way you don't have to start at the beginning. You can if you make it up to level three in that more challenging setup, you can restart at level three rather than going all the way back to the beginning. Right. And they did the same thing with Does Not Commute too, where yeah. you have that uh you just do that one time payment and now you have a checkpoint system. So it it's definitely something it's these are like the impulse ones that I tend to buy because you kind of get, oh I don't want to start all over again. Oh I don't want to start all over again. And so these are it's one of the best systems for IAP that I've found. And I really like that they've kind of stuck with this and made this their go-to in-app purchase, that you pay once and now you get a checkpoint system. Exactly. And so that's Pinout. It's free. It's universal. Next up is Gear Club, and it's gear.club, all kind of together. There's no spaces, so keep that in mind if you're searching on the App Store. And... It's a high-quality 3D racing game. We haven't really seen one of these on the App Store since Real Racing 3 came out, like, it seems like two years ago. And so this is a, a nice inclusion. There's that GT Spirit game from Gameloft, but that was kind of mediocre. And so with Gear Club, it has that familiar nature where you have these authentic, really well-designed cars, and then you have focused races. And when you start out... You just are focusing, the car accelerates automatically, and you just tilt to steer. And so as you go, it's going to build in kind of more controls, and then you can always go into the settings and enable more options so you actually have to brake, because this has that realistic racing aspect. It's not arcade where it's just pedal to the metal the whole way. You need to be concerned with your speed going into cars so you don't drift out, or you always want to maintain your speed to win these races. Right, and you also want to make sure that you're not hitting other cars because you'll get damaged and you eventually have to repair your car if you want to use that car again because you'll see at the end of each race it shows you how much damage you took. And you get damaged not only by hitting other cars but also kind of going off the road and uh, going into rough areas. One of the things I thought was um, nice about it is the way they show you – you can toggle it off if you don't want it, but they show you the optimal path 
that you want to take on any race. So if you can kind of follow these arrows and it tells you, it shows you different colors. So you know when you're going to want to slow down, when you're, where you're going to want to position your car on the road. And then if you're going to want to be speeding up, if you're going to be slowing down, if you're going to want to be braking in order to make those turns. And it really helps you kind of learn the feel of the car and because the different cars will handle differently as you unlock them. And it just kind of gets you used to driving the certain vehicles and knowing how you should be going around these turns or where you should go to make sure you get the best amount of like momentum out of the turns. Exactly. That is key to the game. I mean, you can turn it off, like you said, but it just seems you can get into the flow of the race because it also changes coloring from green to yellow and red to kind of help you with braking. So I guess it could technically make it easier, but it just seems to improve the flow of the game because it's more about you against the track than it is against the other racers. Yeah. Now, the one thing I did notice, and maybe I just haven't hit enough challenging races yet, I found it fairly easy once I got ahead of racers to stay ahead of them. Like yeah, it didn't seem like, thing. uh, I mean, sometimes it took a while to get in front of people, but once I was in front of them, even if I'm like crashing the sides and going off road, no one ever really catches back up to me once I'm ahead of them. Yeah. And that kind of discourages you. Right. Because yeah. this is a racing game. Like the game is beautifully designed and then it handles really well, but the actual racing gameplay it's kind of where it stumbles because it's not super engaging. You're not going, you'd get up to first and then you're dropped to third. One mistake and you're down to fifth and you got to catch your way back up. It never feels like that. Right, right. You never, it's never feels like you really have a challenge after you've passed everyone. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, the graphics are amazing. I haven't tried this on the Apple TV yet, but I think they have a separate version of the app for the Apple TV, which is also free. Um, I'm assuming it must work with the the uh, one on your like it'll probably sync up i'm assuming yeah uh but i i haven't tried it on there yet i i switched to i mean you have if you don't want to use the tilt controls you can also switch so you have arrows to move left and right on the track if you prefer that and like especially with the ipad it was a little awkward to to tilt to steer so i i tried switching to those arrows and those work just fine but it's nice that they do have like free-to-play mechanics for purchasing new cars and upgrading cars and and it feels like at least as far as i've gone i think i'm up to like level three or four it doesn't feel overwhelming as far as the the pricing to really try to get you to buy anything it just seems kind of a natural flow and things unlock in a, in a good progression yeah that is always kind of the thing that i'm hesitant of and, you know, when you first see it, you kind of think of real racing. It has that free-to-play. You see two different currencies at the top. The one hesitation for me is that I don't want to have these on-screen characters come and tell me how to upgrade my car and how to yeah. use the in-app currency. It slows me down. I want to just race. Yes. There's always, like, breaking points. You want to go from race to race, and now it's like, oh, here, do this or do that. And then you know down the road that... You're going to have to upgrade your car to win some races later on. Your car will just be overpowered. And so you you don't win based on your racing skill, but rather just how much you've spent and how much you've earned previously to be able to afford upgrades. Right. But I think that's, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's a problem with all of these free to play racing games. They all fall into that trap. 
And I'm just and, saying Gear Club's another one. Right. And <laughs> it yes, it has the same thing. You, I mean, as soon as you see those characters go on, come on the screen, you're like, I've seen these characters before in pretty much every other free to play racing game. They just kind of change up the looks a little bit. But it's the same exact thing that you see over and over again. And so, no. yeah, it is kind of annoying. <laughs> I do like their. I, I like their big, like, overview map that they have. Like, it's a gorgeous map that you kind of float through to choose, like, the next racing location and the next race you want to go to. And you can customize your garage and add new new segments to the garage where now you can tune your car a little better or do something with the tires. And then you have to add spots to be able to hold more cars. So, I mean, it has all of these things where it's going to be a progression that you have to purchase things and purchase upgrades. And, but you, as far as I could tell, it seemed like you earned the money fairly easily, but I, I assume that's going to be at the beginning, it's going to be like this, but as you get deeper in, it probably will slow down as most of these games do. And it's going to be a little more grindy at the further you get in. Yeah. And so that's gear club. It's free. It's universal. And then We've talked about the Lifeline series before. There's a new version out. It's called Lifeline Flatline. And this is more of a horror sci-fi version to kind of fit in with that Halloween idea. And so it starts where this girl named Wynn wakes up on a hospital bed. She's strapped to it. She has a horrible headache. And it turns out that she's on this kind of abandoned like ship kind of idea. And there's some heavy breathing thing chasing her. And you need to just help her along the way. And so they keep improving upon the formula. Now they've gotten it to the point that they let you choose if the notifications come grouped together, kind of built for the Apple Watch, so you have multiple things you can read together. Or you can have them pop up individually if you're just going to play on your iPhone or iPad. So that's a nice choice. And then they've introduced this new pulse meter. So you can see the character's pulse rate at the top of the screen. So you see how your decisions directly impact how they're feeling. Like you can help calm them down or you can choose something that's going to scare them. Or, of course, you're going to be leading them down dark hallways with something chasing them and their pulse rate's automatically going to increase because of that. Now, they do something with that pulse rate? Like, does that guide certain actions for the for the character or is it just you, you get to see how they're reacting you get to see how they're reacting so if their pulse rate's over 100 you know you better calm them down soon but i mean but is it possible like they're gonna have a heart attack or something if it gets too high or i, I don't know i haven't played that <laughs> oh, okay. far dude. your character died from heart attack no i haven't got that far <laughs> they were scared to death yes. literally and so a few of these games have been written by one particular author. This one's written by a different author. I haven't read any of the Lifeline versions by him, but it has a very similar feel where they're, I mean, the text is broken up to single line chunks. It's not like you're going to be reading paragraphs at a time, so you can't get into how well the author is actually writing and describing everything. But I mean, it has a similar feel to all the other Lifeline games. Okay. Yeah. So where would you rank this in like, in the, the, pantheon of lifeline games um well i still think the original is probably the best okay whiteout wasn't that good the uh the third one was definitely better than the second one but i would say this is kind of right with that third one okay because lifeline 3 had a similar sci-fi idea you're trapped on a ship this one is more 
kind of dep- not depressing, but you seem like you're in more of a dire situation. Okay. So yeah. you care more. <clears throat> yeah. And so that's going to be Lifeline Flatline. It's two ninety nine and it's universal. Okay. And then one last one I wanted to talk about is because I love these glitch games. This company puts out these great uh, point and click adventure games and they just launch a new one. And this one's called the, For- the Forgotten Room. And this is this is a creepy like I love when they get creepy because they're good at creepy. And this one kind of follows this paranormal investigator. He's been hired by this woman whose daughter a uh, 10 year old girl kind of went missing what they were living in this house and she went missing. And then all of a sudden they discover some similarities with another event that happened with this house. And so he goes to the house to stay in the house and see if he can figure out what's going on. And he's a, he's there a couple of days, nothing really happens. And then all of a sudden, like on his last night there, he is there and all of a sudden creepy stuff starts happening and he starts investigating. He finds clues. And so you're finding objects, you're using them to unlock other areas. You solve your typical like point and click adventure stuff where you're solving puzzles. But this one, if you have headphones in, there's like creepy things that happen. Like one point you go to sleep and all of a sudden in the middle of the night, a door slams and then like creep and like another door to this cabin in front of you starts opening, creaking open. And then all of a sudden you flip on your light and there's no one there, but still you heard all this. And so it's a, a really creepy, like difficult adventure game. Like I'm getting legitimately stuck in places and it's the type of thing where I have to walk away and, and then your mind kind of like, figures things out as you're like not in the game and you're like, Oh, I bet that's that. And then you jump back in and then you try this thing you thought about. And that's the, I love those adventure games where it just isn't so straightforward that you plow right through it, where you kind of almost have to take this offline time to solve the puzzles in your head and come back. And I've noticed that with the glitch games recently, they've started to get harder and harder and they kind of force you to really think about things. You're not just going to, flow right through it and so they end up taking a while to get through but it's so rewarding when you do solve these puzzles and kind of make it through to the next segment and so would you say this game fits really well with halloween being tomorrow like oh, I think it's perfect. Kind oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's perfect. I think they picked the perfect time to release it. It's actually at a lower price than some of their other uh, some of their other titles. It's only a dollar ninety nine. I think it's it's definitely like spooky and perfectly timed to release it at Halloween. And so, how since you asked me about Lifeline, how would you compare this among all the different glitch games? Uh, so I I I loved the Forever Lost series. I think that was the best those were the three and they all tied they followed the same story the third one i thought was really really tough and almost too tough for the for forever lost i would say this falls right in with the with that series they've released a couple other ones there was another one called a short tale and there was another one that was completely different and it doesn't even like it's not creepy or anything it was called ferris mueller's day off and it was like that was just like this offbeat, off-the-wall thing. So to me, that's kind of almost like a different animal to these other spooky games that they created. I would rank this right just below like the Forever Lost series. I think if you want to jump into something, that's the place to start with their games. Uh, but otherwise, this is a next, uh, an inexpensive next leap to take. And if you like spooky, this is, and you like adventure games, this is a, a great inexpensive title that it will definitely provide a challenge 
Sounds good. So again, that's The Forgotten Room. It's $1.99. It's universal. And I think that's everything for a really busy and long episode 207. Yes, <laughs> that's all I got. To everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed, and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later.